0: I feel happy to be in the position of sometimes both pissing off the public who wasn't aware of these things and are outraged after they're eating it, but also pissing off the people who wanted to keep this stuff under wraps, who wanted to keep it secret.
1: As protests for social justice spread across the country amid calls to defund the police, many journalists find themselves challenged to report on the systematic racism found within many police departments. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Baynard Woods is an old friend of the podcast. He's been on talking about his coverage of the Baltimore uprisings in 2015 and the future of the alternative press in Baltimore. Baynard has also written a new book with Brandon Soderberg called I Got a Monster, The Rise and Fall of America's Most Corrupt Police Squad. Welcome to the podcast, Baynard. Oh, it's great to be back. Thanks. It's great to be back, too. You've, <laughs> you've been living quite a life since since we last spoke. Not only have you written a book, which we're going to talk about, you actually, you had the coronavirus? I did, as far as I know. I,
0: I you know, test, this was back in Mar- on March, like 15th, like right after things were shutting down, I got, you know, deathly sick with what my doctors said to assume was coronavirus, but because at that point I hadn't traveled, that was the only criteria they were really looking for in terms of testing. They still hadn't even seen, you know, grasped, community transmission, and so for two weeks, really, really sick, and about another three weeks of really uh, weak and recovery being pretty slow.
1: Well, I'm glad you're better, and I'm glad you're back. You seem to have the energy that I I seem to remember remember you from before. Always at the front line of the news, you
0: know, got to get there before everyone else to the coronavirus, too.
1: Yeah, and you're, you know, fortuitously, you've got this book coming out, and I did want to interview you, but... You know, you have some practical experience in covering protests, which you did in 2015 with the uprisings in Baltimore, which were a lot about police violence and racial social justice. Sort of give me a recap on that. What was your experiences in 2015?
0: Yeah, and it's even, you know, it's been a lot of other things than that. But in, in 2015, I was working at the Baltimore City Paper and was actually preparing to leave there. So some of my editorial responsibilities were taken off my shoulders when it happened, and on April the 12th, Freddie Gray was arrested by Baltimore police, thrown head first into the back of the van. His spine was broken and a shallow diving injury. He never emerged with consciousness, died a week later, and protests began right shortly before he died and swept up the city for a couple weeks. We had a riot on April the 27th after his funeral, and I was out through all of that, and you know, and then a curfew and, and reporting in and a curfew and the cops. It was when we were beginning to see what we're seeing so much of now that the police didn't differentiate very much between reporters and protesters. One of the things that went viral was we were out late at night me and a photographer at the police headquarters, or not the headquarters, the precinct station. And there was about 200 cops in a line, about 30 residents. And the cops wanted to get this one resident who'd been taunting them. They made this military formation in charge, and they trampled my photographer, and I was screaming, he, filming it, he's a photographer, he's a photographer, he's pressed, and they just stomped him and were dragging him away, but he got the shot, which later was batons coming down on the guy's head. Yeah, I think we, you know, both for what happens during covering the protest, and more importantly, what the book deals a lot with is... What happens after, what, what to look for after that. But also the, you know, I covered the, the riots and in Trump's inauguration and covered all of the prosecution of that for a year and a half afterwards. And I think that's gonna be just crucial for what's happening right now. The 400 people arrested in DC protests in the last couple of weeks are gonna be prosecuted under the Riot Act. And the way they did it, and I think he was setting the stage for this the very first act of the Trump Justice Department was to prosecute these 200 people under conspiracy law that said that every single one of them was responsible for any window that was broken, for any car that was burned. And the conspiracy was they had all agreed to disrupt traffic. And as long as you agree on something, any other crime that occurs is everyone is accountable for. And so I'm really thinking that that's going to be something that we're going to see playing out a lot as well.
1: And I seem to remember when we talked about that, there was somebody that you had interviewed and that you were writing about. It was a member of the press who was just because he was in the vicinity of all of these people who were arrested was swept up in that as well.
0: Yeah, two reporters were prosecuted till the very end. I was there and and a cop was running at me with her baton sideways, held in both hands to clothesline you. And I held up my press pass and said, press, press. And she went around me and knocked the next person down. And so... I got lucky and didn't get arrested, but Aaron Cantu, who was in New Mexico at the time, and also another reporter, uh, oh, what's his last name, uh, Wood, uh, what was his last name, was charged. And the judge said, and not in refusing to drop charges, that he was live streaming, and so it gave people the chance to join. And so that was a conspiratorial act. Was live streaming the live streaming of the thing? So it, it's crazy.
1: Well, it's incredible that he didn't try to. Uh charge everybody who was watching that live stream is somehow being involved in that conspiracy as well. So a month ago, you know, several weeks ago, I assume that you saw the, the George Floyd video and the, and the response to that, you know, what was your reaction? Was this just like the same old stuff again? I
0: mean, it, was and it wasn't, it wasn't. It's weird because I'm, I'm actively writing a book right now about another book about the transmission of white supremacy. And so I'd been reading a lot about lynchings and about a racial terror, especially in the South, where I'm, my family's from and, and my family was involved in these things. And so it really struck me as all too familiar and not at all new, and yet new in the way that, I mean, the thing that struck me as, mo- as least new was the way he looked out at the camera, had his hand in his pocket, was casually looking, is like all of those old lynching pictures that you see with all of the white people just gathering around looking right at the camera when it's happening. And that was one of the things that casual sadism was one of the things that struck me so much. But also, yeah, having been reporting on police misconduct and police immunity to community concerns, it also struck me as exactly the same kind of thing that We see playing out in Baltimore, although the unconcern about the cameras on him, you know, was something that was just, I mean, and obviously it was just the whole thing, while I'm saying not new, was every time you see something like that, it's wildly
1: disturbing and shocking and, you know, all of that. So let's go into the book then. Tell me what the book is about and what can people expect when they read it?
0: So there was a group, uh, an elite squad of Baltimore police, the Gun Trace Task Force, plainclothes police officers, the kind who go around looking for trouble. Their job specifically was to track, originally was to track guns back to the people who were selling guns. You know, if you saw that movie White Mike, his dad, Matthew McConaughey on that, the guy was giving guns to the gangsters and whoever else. They wanted to do it like drugs. You get the guy with the little package, you get to the bigger package, the bigger package, the bigger package. That was how it started, but when it became the squad it was that that was ultimately indicted in March of 2017, uh, was immediately after the uprising in Baltimore, when we had a spike in crime as well. So they put this guy who was known as a hard charger, as one of the biggest drug cops in the city, in charge of this unit. And you know, you asked before we went on air if it really was the most corrupt unit. It's called I Got a Monster, the story of uh, the rise and fall of America's most corrupt police squad. And... What made it the most corrupt police squad is everyone else in the squad was already corrupt. They'd all been committing crimes separately for years together. And so this one guy comes in right at the moment before body cams and stuff are coming. The book starts in March of 2016, as they begin on this crime spree with they pull a guy over illegally that they'd been tracking and following using federal intelligence. They steal a hundred thousand dollars from his house, They steal two kilos from his house that a a white bail bondsman is, is selling for the sergeant who nightly is delivering drugs. During the riots, went and looted the looters and got two big trash bags full of drugs, brought them to this bail bondsman to sell. He's doing that, stealing large amounts of cocaine and money from dealers in the very opening scene of the book. And then we follow through. It turns out one of the other guys in the squad that he's in is protecting a group of drug dealers that he grew up with. The first guy's a white guy. The second guy's black. And he grew up in Baltimore. And he, his lifelong friend is a major dealer. So he's protecting that guy. The dealers are selling heroin to white kids in the county who are overdosing. So they really want the DEA and the county cops really want these black drug dealers in Baltimore. Uh, you know, the opioid crisis and all of that. So they get a tap up on this guy's phone and they hear him calling a cop. When they hear him calling the cop, they get a tap up on that cop's phone right about the time that Sergeant Jenkins takes over, who's also involved in this major crime ring. And so for a writer, we had this like great fortune of having this insane summer crime spree caught on tape. And so we're able to have dialogue. And, and it's really, though, like I have an, an op-ed that that's out in the post about what some of these crimes mean, I had an op-ed in the Times about some of what... This means the book itself doesn't editorialize really at all and stays really close over the shoulders and a close third person of these cops, of their victims, the people who are the George Floyds and the Freddie Grays who lived and can tell us their stories. And then the the criminal defense attorneys, you know, most of these kinds of true crime narratives, you have the bad guys and then you have the detective and you cut back and forth and cross cut between they're moving forward in this cat and mouse game. In our case, we noticed that it was the defense attorneys who would for years been calling out the misconduct of these cops, only to be ignored by internal affairs, only to be ignored by prosecutors, and to be ignored by judges. And so we wanted to make the defense attorneys be in the cop role, and in the investigator role, as they're going against dirty cops who are wreaking havoc on the citizens of Baltimore.
1: So tell me about the reporting of this book. How did you find out about this story, and and what did the, the process for researching it involve?
0: I first came on the story, and it's one of the reasons that Brandon and I wrote it together, is in 2014, when we were working at the Baltimore City Paper, one of the cops who was ultimately indicted and charged started prosecuting a rapper. And he was using his rap videos as evidence to get probable cause. And it had a gun in the video. I think we even talked about this before. And so he used that to write the house so I was like, you're not rating David Simon's house for the things you see in, in The Wire. How are you rating this guy's house for what's in a, a work of art? And I was a judge signing off on that. So we started writing about that. And once they got indicted, it was like, wow, it's, it's that guy, it's Herschel, Daniel Herschel. So started covering the trial and the trial was just like, I mean, I covered all of the Freddie Gray Trials of those cops, and you know they—they they were very important. And every national reporter in the country was there, and, and they were very boring as trials. It was all about seatbelt regulations, were you required to wear a seatbelt or not, is what it came down to. And this was like exploding bags of cocaine on the street and high-speed chases and just cops disguising themselves as mailmen to break into people's houses to rob stuff and. It was just like every day was something crazier and crazier. Looting gearing the riots and, you know, and so our jaws were just down the whole time. And one day we were walking away from the court in the trial or walking to lunch and Brandon was like, man, this is a book. I was like, yeah. So we immediately started writing a pitch of that. And one of the ways we were able to do it, I should say, is that we have a documentary of the same name that was going to be premiering in the Maryland Film Festival this year, but it was canceled It was accepted, but the event was canceled because of the coronavirus. But so we were simultaneously doing these long video interviews while we were doing other reporting. So it involved a lot of on-camera interviews, which I thought would get totally hamper my style because I'm normally like a hangout, you know, the art of hanging out kind of interviewer. But it was almost like a confessional. It took so long of them setting up the cameras and doing all this. And I would be small talking, making people comfortable while that was happening. And then my job was just to look and empathize the whole time. So we were able to use those interviews that we did for the book. It was also like tons of court documents, indictments, trial transcripts, three federal trials that we both were at in person, but then had the transcripts of. And then all of the trials that these cops testified in. Once we knew what they were lying about, we were able to go watch. They record in the state court here in the circuit court. All of the cases. And in fact, we're involved with a group from Georgetown Law that had previously been with, with the Department of Justice and had formed a civil liberties group there, a lawsuit against the state to make those be broadcastable. Those videos where we can see these police officers lying on the stand regularly and see how they do it and learn from that. And then endless conversations with lawyers and, and the main characters. One of the main characters is the lawyer Ivan Bates. And cell phones just help so much. I'm like, Hey, man, so they called your client, you know, this main case that we're following on July 17th. What else did you do that day? And he was able to pull up his phone pictures and his text messages and everything else. And we were able to really piece together scenes. And so it's a really scene-based book that I think reads like a crime novel, though it's, you know, all footnoted.
1: Okay, well, when is it, you know, is the book out now or when is it going to be released? July 21st is the release
0: date. So, yeah, we... You know, we had all kinds of events that were cooked up for it, but we're, we're not exactly sure how that's going to play out yet, depending on how this, these maybe rash experiments are, of reopening are, are work out
1: in the next month. Okay, so you're hoping maybe the, to get the documentary out there somehow?
0: Yeah, we're, we're also, uh, it originally we filmed enough to do it as a series, and so there's talk about also turning it back to a four-or-something-part series
1: cool that that, that's it's pretty exciting that you're you're able that not only were you able to to find this fascinating story that you but you're also able to not just write a book but also create other content around it based on your reporting
0: and they do so much different they do a lot of different work like in the documentary we talked to tons of of mayors and and former commissioners and all of these people to give context but We didn't use any of that in the book except to inform it. We don't have any talking heads commenting on what it means in the book. It's all just narrative in the story. And so then the documentary, the way those forms work out and not being able to sort of dramatize what you have in court documents and stuff, it really focuses on the victims a lot more and what it did to their lives to be robbed and prosecuted by these cops and nobody believing you and that kind of dynamic.
1: Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Let's sort of circle back then to the protests that are going on now. You know, how well do you think the press has been at covering them? That's a good
0: question. I mean, the press is such a very, you know, a wide term that there's been everything from the worst possible to really great, some really great coverage. I think a couple things that people have, have really gotten wrong in general is the press tends to say peaceful protests. And to me, that's not only vague and a, a bad, not a very useful description, but it takes agency away. And if you called it nonviolent protests, you tie that back to the protests of Martin Luther King, back to the protests of Gandhi, and it becomes a, a tactic and a in a larger strategy. And then I think the reason that we don't do that is because then it turns violence into a strategy as well. And you know, since the 60s, after the 60s, the left has really taken violence as a political strategy off the table. And so no one wants to even acknowledge that as a potential strategy. But it is being used as a tactical move. It is being used strategically, I think. And so I think it's wrong to treat it like, that violence is like the weather and a thing that happens, and it's wrong because it's bad reporting. You're missing the story. That when and why are people deciding that violence is the appropriate tactic to use at this moment is actually something that is a really interesting thing to look at and really is a big part of the story. One of the things I noticed is that nationally right now, the unemployment rate is almost identical to what it was in Black Baltimore in 2015, and so, when you have 15% unemployment, 13 or whatever they're saying now, percent unemployment, you have a lot more people who are willing to protest and you have a, who don't have to go to work tomorrow, don't have a lot to lose and are pissed off and have a lot of time to be reading news and things like that. And, and I think that makes people more willing to put their bodies out on the streets.
1: Yeah. And also, I mean, what, what surprised me most about the, the protests is that they're still going on, that there's still, and I think for a lot of the same reasons that you talked about is is that people are out of work, they're at home, they're they're paying attention to these issues, you know. And I'm not even sure if this is something we talked about the last time you were on the podcast about how you know protests become defanged. That there's a protest and suddenly there's violence, and then it becomes then it becomes a riot, and then it becomes well, we want to stop the riots because we don't want to have violence, and so the me- the message of whatever the, pro- the protest is about what the impetus was is suddenly shifted and people are no longer talking about why people were out there in the first place they're talking about yeah we need to stop the riot and i think now because the discussion seems to be much more about police violence as well as you know racial injustice that there seems to be sort of this pushback against it of you know how the police is reacting i know that you covered freddie gray the trial of that, you know, what are your thoughts about how there, there seems to be this push for, across the country to defund the, the police, you know, sort of mantra, this, this idea that, you know, localities are now looking at how militaristic some police forces are, what sort of tactics they use to respond to peaceful protests or to respond to, you know, individuals, various races who they encounter. Yeah, I mean, let me go
0: back and tie this to your last question a second first and, and how you were introducing it. I mean, one of the things we've done really bad in coverage is protests are still going on, massive protests, and they're not being covered because windows aren't break, being broken, because things aren't being set on fire. I mean, the, what I was saying was a tactical decision. The reason it's a tactical decision is because we in the press only pay attention to protests if something is on fire and if something's burning, that's when everyone went to Ferguson. That's when everyone came to Baltimore. That's when everyone went to Minnesota. And when they're there when it's not, you know, popping off as they say or whatever, it's because we're waiting for it to happen. So if you watch the national news right now, you'd think the protests were over. That that was last week's thing and they're still going on nightly all over. So that's one of the things that we do poorly. I think that all police reform as we see it. At least the lesson I've learned from Baltimore is that most police reform fails because police actively subvert it and actively thwart it. And right now they have even more incentive to do so. So we have this call for defund, defunding police departments, abolishing police departments. And the police see this as an existential threat. You can see it with like the head of the New York Police Union threatening legislators immediately. Like if you're blaming us, you're in big trouble. This is gonna be a problem. So then politicians immediately come out, Joe Biden's like, we don't need to to defund the police, we need to give them enough money to make reform happen. And this is what happened with Freddie Gray, too. All this money poured into the Baltimore Police Department to supposedly reform it. We now have a $500 million police budget in a city of 600,000 people, and we've had over 300 murders every single year since our reforms went into place. 1,500 murders in the last five years, and... $2.5 billion on policing, and none of it's working. And the police use the crime stats to show how necessary they are. And it's like, clearly, what you're doing is not working. And no one else except maybe anti-government Republicans could ever have that argument, like, look how bad we are at doing our jobs. So give us more. We need more money. And so I think that defunding the departments really is the way to bring To our city. I was thinking today about, you know, the Department of Justice did this big study here on the Baltimore Police Department. They found all kinds of atrocious things. The day it came out, the people I wrote the book about planted two guns on people. Well, allegedly planted two guns. The city has agreed in the lawsuits they had. They weren't convicted of it. That wasn't one of their charges, so I can't say. But they were out doing the exact same things they were always doing before that. And, and one of the things in, you know, the people say, well, what are we going to do if we defund police about, like, victims of sexual assault? Well, one of the things in the Department of Justice report was how terrible the police were to victims of sexual assault, as well as sex workers who they would, would force to have sex for immunity. They had cases where they, uh, a prosecutor and, and a cop were joking about a victim's, charges and call it a conniving whore that came up in the report, and then that they just generally didn't respond to those kinds of cases. And I mean, people, there's a big survey of people in West Baltimore that said they were over-policed and underserved. So we're going to see this thing now where New York's threatening a slowdown. all of these cops are threatening slowdowns. So you're going to see that when you call them, they're not going to come. And it's going to be like, oh my gosh, look, that's making crime rise. That's then gonna give way to these cops who are saying, hey, we need the the plainclothes guys and the the hard chargers and the gun squads. They're gonna be like, we're gonna bust heads more. But the guy I wrote the book about was doing 50 unconstitutional stops a night. They called it a door pop where they would speed up on any group of men who were black men who were standing in Baltimore in the summer, when it's hot and a lot of people are outside, slam on the brakes and pop open the door. And if anybody started to run, you'd either tackle them or you'd throw a radio at their head, they call it Radiohead, and you'd see if they had a gun, if they had drugs, they often stole them because they weren't getting, as often, one of the weird side effects of the war ending, ramping down the war on drugs a little bit is that they don't get glory for the drug arrests anymore, so they steal the drugs and they sell them and they're just looking for guns. DC's doing this like crazy right now with its gun unit. They're tweeting out every gun arrest they get every night and we're gonna see that same thing happen in DC. Our cops, in in the book, one of the big stories is they start using a cop in Philly to sell drugs that they stole off the street in Baltimore, heroin and coke in Philly. And so there are these these units of cops working together to do this. And all of that was thwarting reform because the more chaos there is, the more as the murder rate rose, then politicians were like, we need more police. And reform becomes not a a thing anymore. One guy was, they stole $10,000 from him. He went to court for that case, came home from court, and these killers followed him home and shot him in front of his own daughter because he owed money. And it was a different debt, apparently, than the, the money that was stolen from the drug debt when they went in. But it was, he still didn't have the $10,000 to pay it. But that then, paradoxically, made those cops get more overtime and more a longer leash and stuff because it's like, oh, we have to bring the murders un, under control. And in many cases, they're causing creating the situations that cause the murders.
1: You know, this is like fascinating stuff when you start thinking about it. And okay, you're a publisher. You've got 20 reporters. What would you tell them to do about this story? How would you focus them to uncover this story, to report this story?
0: To report the story of what's happening right now, of yeah. the uprising, post-uprising national yeah, yeah, story? Yeah.
1: yeah, you get a team of 20 reporters. What would you tell them? One of the key things would be start
0: talking to I'd find whoever had good sources with defense attorneys and public defenders because they know the people who are causing problems. And so start to ask them, like, hey, who would you look out for? We did this in the uprising. And then when you have the police lines, go along and see if you can find their names and start looking for those names and squaring them up. Because a lot of times the people that we see causing the havoc in the protests, you know, in many ways, when we say riots, they really were police riots. The police were the ones rioting as much as anything. So like one of the famous things that happened here was a guy wearing a a fuck the police shirt. It was the first night of curfew. Black guy with long dreads comes out. Two cops approach him. One sprays him with what turned out to be a legal military grade pepper spray. The other one grabs him by his dreads and pulls him down under the sidewalk and slams him down. Well, one of those guys was the lieutenant over the gun trace task force that I wrote about, signed all their fraudulent overtime slips. And the other guy was their mentor who ended up pleading guilty to planning a, a BB gun to help one of the guys when he ran someone over. So the guys who are causing havoc when they're on national TV on camera, you know they've been causing ha- havoc when they've been on the streets and there aren't cameras every day. And you know, they're the reasons that there's so much rage in the cities anyway. So I would find out who those guys are, start looking through their record. In some places like Minnesota, you can actually get their internal affairs files or at least some of their personnel files. A lot of places police have special protections and you're not able to get that, but you can get it through sources. So start working with sources, compile a list. See if your prosecutors have a do not call list of cops. Some prosecutors have officers that they will not allow to testify because they're dishonest, these will be the same ones who are causing misconduct as well. You get someone working prosecutors, someone working defense attorneys, and then the going around the communities. Who's the ones who, what are the names that you hear? Who are you talking to? So that's that's first, and do one of those type, you know, wire type, or whatever boards where you're, you're putting the connections between these cops together. That would be a big part of it. Part of it would be, you know, there are people in a lot of cities who do cop watch anyway, who are filming. And there's a lot more video than we know of already. And then I'd have someone who was great at, you know, ideally you'd have someone like a Jason Leopold kind of person who, who is great at using FOIA or whatever the state public information act requests are and figure out what you can get about police and start wildly, not wildly cause you don't want to slow yourself down and slow other people down by putting out too many, but start putting out a lot of public information act requests or body cam footage for internal affairs records, other records, and go, and then I'd send someone to the court to start looking at old trial stuff. So you start looking at, and you look at cases, you go through your court database, look at cases that were dismissed. What case went to court and didn't even get a verdict at all? That meant the judge found something fishy and threw it out? Or what ones were dismissed before they went to court and start, when you ha- once you already have your, your cops you wanna sort of look at, start seeing what happens there and start making those calls.
1: Yeah, start checking the, the arrest versus the conviction for, for compared to the different officers who were, who were doing them. You know, whenever you're on the podcast, you really, really charge my batteries. What is it about, you know, that charges your batteries when it comes to journalism?
0: As all journalists at some level, fury is a part of it. You see some things and you know, and fury mixed with inquisitiveness and mixed with like a desire to be able to do good storytelling and knowing that these fury inspiring stories make good stories as well. But like you see certain number of, of infuriating things and you just know there are more and you got to find them out and you know, there are these things and you want to like, you want to get to the bottom of it and you want to understand. And part of it is a, a duty to the sense that like, I feel like I've had a super fortunate life and the thing that the Baltimore uprising taught me was that I didn't understand policing at all before that even though like I'd been arrested I grew up in South Carolina I got arrested for weed three times by the time I was 19 a cop had told me I see you on this side of town again you're going to jail you know like I wasn't entirely naive about the way that they were being a long haired white boy but I was still entirely naive about how that played out. Then differently for me than it would have for someone else who didn't have the advantages that I had. I saw that the Baltimore police saw their job specifically as to protect white property from the black majority of our city, and that infuriated me. And I saw that in my neighborhood, when people are like, "What? A, how could you imagine a world without police?" Go to any white neighborhood. And the only reason they're there is if you call them. They're not skulking around looking at you. Every white neighborhood is a world without police. And that made me just outraged. And then five years ago today, uh, when Dylan Roof went into, and he grew up about 10 miles from me, went into a church in Charleston where my family is from and massacred nine black people because they were black. And in an attempt to start a race war, that made me realize even more of that. And so I I feel like I have, and then covering things like Charlottesville, I feel like I have a certain duty that I can put my body in the way sometimes to find out things that may be more dangerous for people who don't look like me or don't have the resources that I have might not be able to put their body in that place or might not be able to spend the resources that I might be able to spend or or get from a publisher or whoever else to find these things out. So there really is a part of it that is, you know, wanting to expose what's been covered up, being pissed off about that. And then the other part is like, like this book, one of the things I'm really proud about is I think it turns it into just a hell of a good story. You want to be able to, to take that stuff and, get to the human motivation. I mean, in some ways, what I feel like this story is the Iliad. It's this band of pirates who are basically roaming around waging war on people who are in palaces and trying to get the booty that they can get out of there. And So what are the human motivations behind that? And what is the universal timeless story in addition to the momentary news story?
1: Are you hoping in your writing to, to maybe get people a little angry too or infuriated too?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I hate to repeat this cliche because it's a cliche, but I do think it's really true that comforting the afflicted and the afflicting the comfortable old saw. And yeah, I want to not only like make the public who is unaware angry about some that some of these things that happened. I also want to piss off the people who are in power who don't want these things to be known. There's a great pleasure that comes from sort of being able to say, fuck you, you wanted to keep this hidden and it's not going to be hidden now it's out there, you know, and then there's the, though, the, the comforting, the afflicted to whatever degree we can. I, I spent over a year on a story about a guy who died in police custody in Baltimore. They said he shot himself in the head in a bathroom and nothing about the story added up. And I wasn't able to piece together whatever actually happened, but I was able to show that what they said happened didn't at all. And, and his fiance wrote, After the story came out, you know, all those nights I thought that I was the only one who was awake thinking about Tyree when after he died and like to know that there was some white guy across town also staying up at night thinking about him and who figured all of this out like means the world to me and lets me move on with my life. And like that's probably the most the best reward I've gotten from my career was that one uh, that one comment.
1: Baynard, you know, we could talk for another hour or two on this, but I can't wait to read your book. Again, the title is I Got a Monster, The Rise and the Fall of America's Most Corrupt Peace Squad, Police Squad. Why do you keep saying peace squad? The Rise and the Fall of America's Most Corrupt Police Squad.
0: Definitely not a peace squad.
1: <laughs> That's what we need,
0: replace police of peace. That's
1: You're already on the abolition train. Exactly, exactly. Thanks a lot. Thanks for being on the podcast. All right. Thank you. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music, Emilia Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist, and I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening. Life-changing decisions can be hard, or they can be flexible, inclusive, and best of all, rewarding. Earn your master's in computer science, data science, or information systems at Northeastern University in the San Francisco Bay Area. No matter your experience, earn your degree. Plus, the desirable Bay Area is a smaller, collaborative campus, but connected to the huge Northeastern University. Discover the different technology degrees available. Visit northeastern.edu pathways to tech.